Assalamu alaikum. You're listening to the Heartwork Community Quran Study of Surah Yusuf at Roots. All of our programming at Roots is live streamed and published free of charge thanks to the goodwill of our monthly sustainers. Your donations allow us to continue our mission of being a community of welcoming, providing meaningful content, and nurturing our hearts, minds, and souls in coming closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa You can help us reach our Ramadan campaign goal of 250 new sustainers by signing up today. Or, if you are already a sustainer, you can increase your amount and also encourage your family and friends to support the work we do by signing up at rootsdfw.org sustain. As always, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and reward you. Jazakumullah khairan wa salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Okay, salamu alaykum. Bismillah walhamdulillah. Welcome home, everybody. It's good to see you, alhamdulillah. Um, inshallah, you guys are doing well. Uh, inshallah, inshallah. I, uh, I know that officially summer has started, so we have, mashallah, the, the, the child mu'adhan in the back, mashallah. Um, it's good to see everybody, alhamdulillah. I know that everyone's got grand plans for the summer. Uh, I'll update you a little bit about some of our calendar. Uh, we got some good stuff coming, inshallah, um, including this weekend, but we also have some other stuff, inshallah, some uh, unique programs to get us through the summer months, bidnillah. Uh, and then, um, you know, I think everyone will enjoy and benefit, not just the lectures, but also some of the social stuff, inshallah, as well, and some more reflective uh, readings uh, outside of that, bidnillah. Um, all right, let's continue, inshallah. So we are, let me see if I can make this a little bit bigger. All right, we are Okay. So we are at the point where let's do a little recap. Yusuf alayhi salam has uh, done his time and has gone through the, uh, you know, the term of his uh, sentencing, or is going through the term of his sentencing. And the king has a dream. The ministers around him tell him that his dream doesn't mean anything. But somewhere along the way, as he's detailing his dream, uh, the, the, one of the individuals who was in prison with Yusuf, who is now serving wine to the king and his court, overhears this dream that is confusing and says, I know someone. And he takes him, uh, uh, he says, send me to Yusuf so I can get the dream interpreted. The king says, go ahead. And he uh, lets him go down to the prison to see Yusuf. And he tells Yusuf what the dream was. And Yusuf uh, gives him the interpretation of the dream. And we talked about all the lessons that went with that. Uh, it was really, really a lot. So if you missed it, then please check out the last uh, session because it was really am amazing, subhanAllah, what some of the scholars of tafsir, they extracted from this. Uh, and I'm just sharing that stuff with you. Um, and so now we moved on. So the dream is delivered back to the king. The messenger goes back to the king and tells him that here is the dream. Here's what's going on. And here's what's going to be happening in Egypt. And this is why we got to take this dream very seriously. So when the king heard about this, he asked, he said, send him to me or bring him to me. Uh, when the messenger came back, Yusuf then responds with a little bit of a, you know, a, a check move. And he says, go back and ask him about the case, the reason why I'm in here. 
Okay, so we took some lessons from that, that Yusuf obviously was innocent, and in that moment, right, he did what was best for the society, because ultimately the society was at risk. There was like a huge risk factor with people dying, and not enough, you know, crops getting out to individuals and their families, and so Yusuf focused on telling him the interpretation of the dream, and then, after now he's done his part, he's like, you know what, let me get my situation solved. Let me get my issue taken care of. So when he says, go back to your master, i.e. the king, and ask him about the case of the women who cut their hands back in the day, then surely my Lord has full knowledge of their plan or their cunning plan. So when the king then hears about this, because this was, again, he wasn't there when this was happening. He wasn't handling this, this, uh, this relatively low-level court case. He asked the women you know, what they had done. And all of them had said, you know what, we weren't a part of this, we were just witnessing what was going on. But at that moment, the Aziz's wife, the wife of the Aziz, and we had said that since then the Aziz had passed away, she says the truth and she admits what happened. It had been 12 years and she admitted what had happened. She said that it was I who tried to seduce him and he is in fact truthful. And then when she's speaking about her Husband, I know the translation here says Yusuf, but most of the Mufassirin, the scholars of Tafsir, they say that she's referring to her husband here. So there's two things that are happening. Number one is she's feeling the guilt of lying. She's feeling the guilt of lying and putting this person in prison, and it's not right, and it's, he's suffering because of her inability to tell the truth. That's number one. And number two is she's also suffering the guilt of the sin in the first place. And we've talked about this a lot, so I'm not going to go too deep into it, but this is the reality of making mistakes, is that the only thing that takes away the pain of mistakes is repentance. Right? So now she's at this point where she's repenting, and undoubtedly she's feeling some, some relief from her guilt. But you can imagine for how long. And one of the things she mentions, if you read this ayah here, as she's talking about her husband, she probably had, according to the Mufassirin, she probably had carried some anxiety and guilt and regret about losing the trust of her husband while she, he was alive. Knowing that she was, you know, she had done this and he was thinking the whole time, like, is my wife faithful? Is she not? Do I believe her? I know that she said nothing happened, but maybe this is like because I caught her? Like, who knows? Right? So one thing that we learn about making mistakes, and this is really, really, really important. I need everyone to listen to this one line, and then you can zone out. Allah will forgive your mistakes, absolutely. That's something that He promises. That's something that He guarantees. So long as you come back, Allah will forgive. But it is difficult to rely and depend upon people to have that same level of forgiveness because absolutely they can't match Allah's forgiveness. So that's why Allah teaches us that prevention is more valuable than the cure. I, my mom always used to tell us, like, don't test people's ability to forgive. Don't test their ability to forgive. You could argue till the, to, from, the, from the sunrise to sunset, we should all be forgiving. And that's true. But I guarantee you that you have had a point in your life where you found it difficult to forgive somebody. And so it's better to think twice and to, and to speak once. It's better to think twice. You know, they say this like in, in woodworking, like you measure twice and cut once. It's better to think twice about what it is that you're going to do or say or whatever 
before you actually do the thing because you never know what kind of burden that action or statement could put on the heart of a person and whether or not they'll be able to get over it as quickly as you need them to, right? So we should be as, as cautious as possible when it comes to wronging somebody because we want to make sure that we don't test their ability to forgive us, okay? And so here she sits and she didn't know and this was something that she had to live with and she says, that from this, he should know that I did not speak dishonestly about him in his absence, for Allah certainly does not guide the scheming of the dishonest. And then she says, and I do not seek to free myself from blame. I did this. This is also part of the ownership. When a person wants to take ownership for their mistakes, they can't try to make excuses while they're apologizing. Part of tawbah with Allah is not to say, oh Allah, I'm sorry, but why did you put this person in my life? She, you know, she's not saying, oh Allah, I'm sorry, but why did you bring Yusuf to my, my house? Her tawbah is unconditional, has no contingency clauses. Tawbah has to be absolute. And instead of turning the, 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 you know, I'm using this carefully, instead of turning the blame back to Allah, by the way, that's what shaitan did. When shaitan was upset with Allah, he said, you're the one who did this to me. Right? You're the one who put me in this situation. But every person in the Qur'an that has the theme of righteousness, and by the way, her story is amazing because she's showing us repentance like live action right now. We're seeing it. Every person who's growing towards righteousness, they didn't blame Allah, they just blame themselves. That's the first step. We have to take ownership. Otherwise, we're never going to be able to grow from that. We're never going to be able to grow from that. Ibn Atta'illah, he says... In order for a plant to grow, it first has to be buried. And part of burying yourself is owning your mistakes, owning your flaws, burying yourself in the soil of humility so that you can sprout and you can grow properly. Because every seed that is not planted properly never grows, as my son found out this year in kindergarten science. Okay? So, then she says, I do not seek to free myself from the blame. I'm not putting this on anybody else. For indeed, she says, the soul is that which is inclined towards evil. Now this is a very, uh, the tafsir kind of goes on a, on a flow chart here. The soul is that which is inclined towards evil. She's saying it's me. It's nothing else, right? You can blame your environment. You can blame your ecosystem. You can blame everything. But guess what? Everyone, you know, plus or minus whatever degree you want, everyone is surrounded by some kind of test and difficulty in their life. Every single person. You know, I always laugh when people talk about like, well, there's just, there's so much, you know, it's so difficult for me. It's like, well, you don't think that it was difficult for people before you? This is one of the reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says that you have to think about those people who were tested before you as well. Allah ta'ala says that he tested those of you and he tested those before you. Why? Allah Ta'ala wanted to know, we wanted to make clear who are those people who are truthful and who are those people that are lying. So everyone's got tests, man. Everyone's got tests. You know, very recently I was part of a, a group exercise where we talked about all the things that we're struggling with. And one of the interesting things about that moment that we were going through this group exercise with was that you look at somebody and you almost guarantee there's no way they're going, they got anything bad in their life and they open up about something that's super difficult that they're going through, subhanAllah but they're very good at masking it. So one of the ways that you can make companionship in a way that benefits you 
is by understanding and assuming that everybody that you connect with, that you're close with, has gone through something that they can relate to you. Because why? When someone comes and advises you, and they try to help you, what's the shaitan's first thing to say back? You don't know what I'm going through. You have no idea what I'm going through. The reality is sure, you could argue that. They're not in your shoes. They didn't grow up you. They don't know what it's like to be you. But does that mean that their advice is totally invalid? No, of course not. Absolutely not. So the soul, the Quran mentions three different stages of the soul. Your, your soul could be in one of three stages. The first is the, this one that she's mentioned, the one that commands towards evil. This is the soul that says, skip Fajr. This is the soul that says, you know, as you're watching Succession, this is the soul that says, finish the series. And then, you know, in your heart, you're like, oh man, but Fajr. And the soul is like, I know, but you got to find out what happens. You know, you got to see what happens at the end of the series. Even though it's not going to disappear, you can watch it tomorrow. But this is the soul that wants to keep going. This is the soul that tells you to talk back. This is the soul that when you're being talked to by somebody, and you know that, you know what, I could, I could squash this fool. Like, I could just come back at him. It's somebody, or your parents are talking to you and you're frustrated, or your friends, or your spouse, you name it. This is the soul that says, just come back at him. It turns your tongue into a knife. And it makes you cut. And you know what's crazy? SubhanAllah, there's an Arabic poet, and he said that the wounds of the, of the, of the flesh, like the wounds of your, your limbs... Those ones are easy because they just bruise and heal. He said, but the wounds of the tongue, it leaves scars on the heart that never heal. So ajeeb, right? This is the one that tells you to say the thing that you're going to regret. You say it and then as you're driving home, you're like, I wish I didn't say that. Okay? So this is the one that we ask Allah to protect us from. Then there's another stage of the nafs. The nafs is what? It's you. And that stage, that nafs, is a nafs al-lawama. That is the one that's constantly battling inside of you. How many of you guys are familiar with this one? Raise your hand. This is the one that most people are familiar with. Because the nafs al-lawama is the one that's telling you as you go back and forth, back and forth, whether or not you should do something. And then there's the nafs al-mutma'inna. The one that Allah Ta'ala says on the, on the day of judgment or the day of their death, either one, that Allah Ta'ala will call this nafs back, this soul back. Come back to Allah, the one that is pleased with you and you are pleased with Him. This is what we're seeking. So interestingly, a lot of people try to think, the first question I always get is that which nafs am I? Right? You got everyone in here thinks that they're, you know, either nafs al-lawama or nafs al-mutma'inna. Or no, actually no, nafs al-amara basu, the evil one, and then the one that's working on itself. And you got that one person who's like, I'm nafs al-mutma'inna. But subhanAllah, that one of the best understandings of this that I've come across from Ibn al-Qayyim and others is that your same soul goes through these stages multiple times a day. Like you basically are going through this all day long. Like some of the things you don't struggle with. Right? That's nafs al-mutma'inna. Like you're just pleased to be with Allah. Doesn't matter, right? It's like, it's like dhuhr prayer. No one, no, one struggle, no one struggles to like think about dhuhr prayer as an idea. If you do, if you're not awake by like 5.45 p.m., you have other issues besides dhuhr alone. No one struggles with like dhuhr prayer in that sense. Of course we have work and we have like, you know, convincing ourselves to get up and pray. But I'm talking about like most people are conscious at that time to pray. Okay? And then you have, so we're all, we're all pleased with Allah and inshallah at that moment he's pleased with our, our, our souls. But then you have 
which is the one that tells you that you should be doing the wrong thing. And that's what she's blaming on this moment that she had. That's what she's blaming in that moment. But then there's nafs al-lawama. And this is what the scholars say. You live most of your life going back and forth in this stage. This is where you're most, you found yourself the most. So what does she say then? She says, إِلَّا مَنْ رَحْمَ Everyone will experience that station of commanding towards evil except for the ones who let themselves experience the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is why we start everything we do by saying what? Bismillah, who? Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. We engage, as Muslims, we engage every single action by calling upon the most merciful. Because why? We realize that it's only by His mercy that we're able to even do anything of, of substance with that. Even down to the food that we eat, we say Bismillah. Right? Musa, my son, has become a master of the dua that you say after you eat before saying Bismillah. You guys know what I'm talking about? There's a dua that you say, Bismillah awalahu akharu, right? You, you, everyone's nodding. You all know it. Everyone's like, yeah. Wait, there's another one beyond that? Yeah, you're supposed to say it before you, you start eating. Right? So this is the idea. We are so granularly in need of Allah's mercy that we should be thinking of it at every given point in time. Before you enter the house, before you leave. How many of you drove here today? Don't raise your hand. How many of you drove here today, started your car, sat, hopefully buckled your seatbelt, and you drove here without saying, Bismillahi, tawakkaltu ala Allah, la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. Right? Seeking the mercy and protection of Allah. What guarantee do I have, O oh Allah, that I'm going to get to my destination? Was there not an individual that sat in their car seat and drove to and didn't make it? Was there not a person that sat down thinking the last text they sent was, I'll see you soon? And that was it? Of course. May Allah have mercy on them. Absolutely. We all know the stories of individuals in our family and friend circles that their life was taken in a moment of trying to go somewhere. So it's, it's a reminder to us constantly that we are constantly being tested. We need to ask Allah to be merciful to us. Oh Allah, send your mercy down upon us. Because that mercy is like, is like the, the, the oil that allows your life to move, to exist. Except by those shown mercy by my Lord. Surely my Lord is the all-forgiving and the all-merciful. This is a person, by the way, I want you to think about how confident someone must be that they committed one of like the greatest sins. Not only did she try to seduce, you know, imagine like, it's not just like seducing anybody. You're trying to seduce a prophet. And then you lied about it, and then you tried again, and you forced that person to go to prison. That's a big deal. And at no point in the decade plus did you come to this individual and say, you know what, I'm wrong. It was only, subhanAllah, think about this, the tawbah that was experienced as a result of circumstance. Like she didn't, like, she didn't find inspiration and like show up and say, you know what, I would like to turn myself in. This was one of those moments where it was going according to plan and then all of a sudden this king has a dream and Yusuf is the interpreter. And now what's bound to happen? Yusuf's going to come out of the prison and she's going to have to own up to her mistake. So this is one lesson that the Mufassideen they bring up is they say, turn to Allah before you're made to turn to Him. Some people only turn to Allah when they lose their job or when they get sick or when things don't go their way. 
And it's still good to turn to Allah in those situations. But what's even sweeter is when a person finds it intrinsically that, that, that fire to turn back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not, it's not because they were forced to. Right? You guys ever been on a plane when there's turbulence? There's no such thing as a disbeliever when that's happening. Everybody is screaming, God help, please. Right? Shaykh Abdel Nasser and I were flying in, I think it was from Michigan. And we were, it was one of those nights where there was a storm, we were flying. And I fly all the time. I've never felt this kind of turbulence in my life. Like, never. And, and you know it was serious, because, uh, so he was sitting on the window seat and I was in the center seat. And then you have this poor lady next to me, because there's just like two giant dudes and this, this woman that was like trying to breathe. Uh, and the armrest was down. So I, I had my arm in the armrest because that's the rule for center seat, right? If you guys don't know. And, uh, you know, Sheikh had his hand kind of like chilling on the, on the back of the seat in front of him. And you know it was serious because when I looked at my hand and his hand, our knuckles were like white. Right? And I'm white, so that makes sense. But he's not. <laughs> so you have to imagine, right? So we were, and, 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 and we kept, you know, reciting du'as. You know, he was reciting salawat and I was like, Right? Ah, yeah, see? I was asking Allah to protect us from all the evil that was on the earth and on the, in the sky. Alhamdulillah, we landed, and I want to tell you, subhanAllah, man, it, it, you know, we were, what game were, we were watching a game, I think it was Lakers and Warriors, right? To both of those guys. <laughs> um, and we completely turned it off and just started focusing on this, because why? Because when you're in a state where Allah brings you back to Him, like, that's, that's the reality. But you know what's crazy, subhanAllah, is that we were just as much in need of Allah when the flight was smooth. <laughs> but Allah just showed us a little bit of difficulty to remind us that. And that's the reality. When you're sitting comfortably, you're just as in need of Allah as when you're sick. It's not that your need has disappeared, it's that you forgot that. Okay? And when we got off the plane, we kind of told the pilot. Everyone was like, good job, good job. People were just, you know, one at a time, like, great work, great work. We told them, we're like, you're welcome. <laughs> he was like, what do you mean? We're like, just, you're welcome, right? <laughs> it wasn't you landing it. Okay? Allah actually says this in the Quran, أَوَلَمْ يَرَوْا إِلَى الطَّيْرِ فَوْقَهُمْ صَافَاتٍ وَيَقْبِدْ مَا يُمْسِكُهُنَّ إِلَّا الرَّحْمَانِ SubhanAllah. He says, don't you see the bird in the sky? extending his wings and then bringing it back in. He says, none holds that bird up in the sky, illa rahman Only a rahman holds that bird up. What do they call a plane in Arabic? Tayr. Yeah, so, planes too. Alright, so the king then said, bring him to me. I will employ him exclusively in my service. This is the judgment now. So Yusuf, man, I got, you guys got to think about this for a second. Yusuf is getting like the... Upgrade, the promotion of a lifetime. Right? He didn't even need LinkedIn. Like, this just happened. And when Yusuf spoke to him, the king said, Today, you are highly esteemed and fully entrusted. Meaning, you are my closest advisor now. Right? And, and this is, again, another lesson. Like, these, they just keep rolling out. I want you to imagine... The times in your life when you were wondering why this was happening. Why this was happening. And perhaps, subhanAllah, it was part of your preparation. 
nafsi. This happened to every prophet. That phrase I just said was what Allah said to Musa salam. When Musa was going through his life, man, talk about difficult life. He was supposed to be killed the day he was born. He was dead before he even came out of his mother's womb. There was a proclamation that all boys born in that year should be killed. And he's born. And he goes through this entire process of, again, he's, he's, he's a fugitive, he's escaping, he's in the desert, drought, starvation, etc. And then he meets Allah, and he, Kareem Allah, he spoke to Allah. And Allah recounted every point of his journey. And then he says, and now you're a prophet. I was preparing you for me. The whole way. Imagine saying that phrase to yourself every time you're in a difficult spot. Allah is preparing me for him. He's preparing me for him. Wallahi, I'm not joking. If you look at my office inside this, this corner, if you look, ne- the, the, there's a phrase that's posted next to my door. Because you have to, it's my favorite ayah. Because you have to know, you have to trust that whatever it is that is in your way is not a wall, is not an obstruction. It's training you. It's getting you ready for Allah. I, I was talking to somebody the other day and he was, he was struggling with this idea. And he was saying, you know, how do I know that what this bad thing in my life, how do I know that it's, it's for that purpose? Like, I, I, he's like, I'm hearing you, but I'm not, I'm not, it's not working. You know, what you're saying sounds nice. And this is the reality, right? A lot of people feel spiritually bypassed. And I, I want to I just pause for a second and let you know that you should never feel that way here. I don't want people to come up with real problems and be like, just trust in Allah, go away. That's not how it works. Right? But the reason why I want to hit these lessons is because they are life lessons. So he was sitting and he was telling me, he said, you know, I have trouble appreciating the test in my life as something that's helping me. Every test that comes, I don't, I get upset. And he started to feel emotional. And he said, I start to get upset with Allah. And he goes, I can't control it. And so I told him, I'm Egyptian. So Egyptians, like we try to work on metaphor a lot. So... That's why Egyptians talk with their hands. Do you guys, have you guys seen that TikTok account, the guy, the Egyptian guy in Dubai? Okay, so if you look it up, he's exactly right. So I told him that part of your struggle, and I, I actually, I, I, I kind of narrated to him a little story. I said, when the event is happening in your life, it's blocking your eyes. It's like this close, okay? Everyone who's far away can tell what this is, but I can't tell what it is. It's covering my eyes, and I can, all I can tell you is that I can't see. And what I need is distance of this from my sight, and that distance in life is called time. And so if I let this sit here, I'm frustrated. Oh Allah, why are you doing this to me? At that point, that's when Allah Ta'ala said, that's when the Prophet said, الأولى, Patience is required at that moment. And then you're patient, and some time goes by, and all of a sudden now... As your time goes, you start to recognize what that is, why that moment occurred, right? Now here's the thing, like we just said. It's okay if a person has to wait to see it in order to believe it, but what's sweeter than trusting it when you can't even see it? When I, was, when I had my surgery on my knee and I was working with my PT, she was like bending my knee and like doing all this kind of stuff, and it was really painful. And I remember 
I remember looking at her and being like, you know, at some point I'm like, I'm never going to walk again. Like, this is just so painful. Every day is so slow. And she kept telling me, she's like, you're going you're gonna to be fine. You're going to be jumping. You're going to be doing this, 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 like all that, right? She's like, trust me. That's basically what she was saying. Trust me. And I, when I said back to her, basically, I don't trust you. I mean, I didn't say that. But when I said, it's never going to work, she's like, you need to trust me. I'm like, it's never going to work, right? I get frustrated. And then there was a guy next to me. There's two tables. There's a guy next to me one day, and it was a particularly difficult day. And she, 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 uh, she told me, she said, Abdul I said, what? She goes, look at that guy right there. And I go, yeah. And she goes, you see him? And he was like, he was bending his knee, like going all kinds of crazy like angles. Look at he's performing like a dance routine. And I said, yeah. She goes, he's six months away from where you are. And I looked at him and all of a sudden I felt this hope like bubble up in my chest. And I said, really? And she goes, yeah. And then I said, let's get to work. And she said, I wish you just trusted me. Like, she was happy, but she's like, she started laughing. She goes, you guys are all the same. Meaning patience. Like, you don't believe us until we have to show you an example. And I was telling this to the young brother. And I said, how many times does Allah just tell us, I wish you just, just trust me? You know, you, you only believe me, Allah is saying, when I have to show you. But wouldn't it be nice if right at the onset of whenever the trial hit, we just said, I trust you, O Allah. You are the one that's in control. That's where we're trying to get to. We ask Allah Ta'ala to get us there. So Yusuf going through that whole time, and you can imagine, you can imagine how much human emotion, sadness, despair, maybe even a little bit of confusion is occurring to him. Could you ever imagine how, in what world, would Yusuf, from the family of a farmer, of a shepherd, right? Because the Prophet said that all prophets were shepherds. From the family of an agrarian shepherd, in the middle of out, the outskirts of Arabia, of Egypt, going into Palestine. Could you imagine that he would one day become the second most important person in Egypt, after the king? And arguably, one Mufassir said, He's actually more important than the king because the king now is at his service. Because the king is like, my dream was only interpreted by you. So in reality, Yusuf kind of took over the entire kingdom as the one who was most powerful. So the king said, bring him to me, I will employ him. Whatever it is that you are going through, that preparation is going to give you something that will bring you close. And subhanAllah, one of the scholars, he said, this, your time in prison, or Yusuf's time in prison, is your time in this life. And when you die in this life, you're brought out and you meet the king, Allah. And just like the king is telling Yusuf that today you are highly esteemed, on the Day of Judgment, Allah will tell you, you are highly esteemed today. Right? He gave the example of the Day of Judgment, subhanAllah. Yusuf said, okay, put me in charge of the storehouses of the land, because I am truly reliable and I am, uh, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I'm skilled at this. I understand. I know what I'm doing. This is a very beautiful tension here. A lot of us were taught about humility. We're taught to be humble, right? Never take credit. You guys probably heard this from me. 
Never take credit. What did Yusuf do in the, in, the, in the prison when they were praising his piety? He said, what? This is from Allah. So I went on this whole rant about never take credit, never take credit. But the problem is sometimes Allah has given you a skill and he's given you a talent. And it's actually not about taking credit. It's about you have a, a responsibility now. Right? Imagine on a plane if someone's like, is there a doctor on the plane? And all the doctors were too humble to help. <laughs> like, no, right? It's always the PhD that stands up, though. Right? PhD meaning uh, doctor of philosophy. Okay, so at some points, the situation is so critical where it's not about you getting credit or taking credit. It's about you doing what you need to do in order to help. And that's why Yusuf, alayhi salam, when, 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 when the king says to him, yeah, you're, my, you're in my inner circle now. Like, you're trusted. Like, we're going to do this together. Yusuf doesn't just say, like, oh, thank you so much. No, no, no. You know what? Put me back in prison. Yusuf says, okay, I'm here, but I'm here to do work. I'm here to help. And my skill, what I can do, is I know about how, I know about how to save this country by taking care of the crops because I'm the one who has the interpretation of exactly how this is going to go because of the dream that you had. And so he tells the king that put me in this position. This is the balance that Muslims have. When Muslims engage with responsibility, then we are humble, but we are also, we are active. When we have responsibility. Where are you supposed to be humble without action? Is if you have no, if you have no, if you have no horse in the race. Like if a person's walking by and they're like, I'm really good at this. I'm really good. I'm really great at this. All right. It sounds like my son, when he comes up to me, he's like, Baba, I'm really fast. And I'm like, are you in the Olympics? Are you racing? Like why, you know, but children love to just brag and talk about themselves and children and adults who are like children. Right. The only time that sharing that skill is valuable is when it actually is of need. There's no point in being humble when you're, in need, when, when you're the person in need, when you need to be helpful, right? So he says, put me in charge. Allow me to be the person. Allow me to be the person that's in charge of these warehouses of our land. Because why? I have two skills. Number one, I know what I'm doing. Alim, I'm knowledgeable about this. Wahafil, and I'm somebody that is trustworthy. Right? These are the two things that we should look for in all of our partnerships, businesses, relationships. Somebody should know exactly what they're talking about. And they should be a person that's reliable. A person can be knowledgeable, but they can be a liar. They could not be trustworthy. And a person can be trustworthy, but they can be ignorant. So we talk about this as a two-part equation. Okay? And then Allah Ta'ala says, وَكَذَلِكَ مَا كَنَّا that this is how we established Yusuf in the land to settle wherever he wanted to. That Yusuf had complete control. This is the way that Allah Ta'ala is telling us that he went from being confined in, a, confined in his home as a bullied little brother to confined in the well as a prisoner of, 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 of victimhood of his brothers to confined as a slave, to confined in a prison and now what? Allah Ta'ala has freed him and unshackled him and allowed him now to be a person that completely controls this kingdom. And then he says, we shower mercy on whoever we will. Naturally, a person is going to say, man, how can I get a little bit of that mercy? Right? Yes or no? Who's interested in getting a little bit of Allah's mercy? If it's going to make you a king, 
Yeah. Who's interested in life, all these, these hiccups and moments in life that you're confused about, who's interested in finally getting to the point where they start to make sense? Absolutely. Allah Ta'ala says what? He says that Allah will never discount. Allah will never discount the reward of those who do good. The, 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 the solution, the answer to that question of how, how do I get this mercy is in that last word, ihsan. You do everything, but not just doing it, you do it with beauty. You do it as best as possible. Like Asr. How many of us could say that that was like the best Asr we've ever prayed? You're like, what's Asr? Exactly. Alright? Think about it. When it comes to Allah, it's, it's, at sometimes it's mediocre at best. But then we demand so much. It's so interesting. We demand the mercy, we demand the provision, we are constantly seeking, but then when it comes to our end of the deal, there's like a, there's like a negligence that's almost offensive. If it were any other relationship, we would call that you know, abuse. We would say that that's an abusive relationship. Right? But of course we don't speak about that way with Allah. Allah cannot be abused. But the relationship is so neglected. May Allah forgive us. We have to think about it. Right? Imagine praying Fajr as if Allah would only give you what you were due that day from Him if you prayed. Missing Fajr is not an option anymore. This is how the pious people thought. The pious people before us would always think that, you know what? If I want to be able to get what I'm asking for, I gotta, I gotta uphold my end of the bargain. I gotta keep up my side. If I can't keep up my side, you know what they would say? They would say, I'm being tested, and they would say, I know exactly why I'm being tested. And then someone would say, what do you mean? And they would say, I didn't do my side of the deal. I didn't pray. I didn't fast. I didn't make du'a. I didn't, do, I didn't make a istighfar. I didn't do my side of the deal. So they would know, right? Ihsan is a part of that. Everything that we do, do it as best as you can. Don't compare yourself to anybody else. Because that's not Ihsan. Ihsan is not copying somebody. Ihsan is doing the best you can. Is doing the best you can for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay? And then Allah says, and He will reward them of the hereafter. It's far better for those who are faithful and mindful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah ta'ala mentions this here because in part when the reader is thinking, how good would it be to be the king of Egypt? How good would it be to be the king, completely in control, servants, Right at your disposal, anything you could want, you get it. It's almost like being a grandchild. I was I was laughing uh, the other day. I saw this grandchild and his grandparents. He was sitting across the lap of one of his grandparents, and the other grandparent, I'm not making this up, was feeding grapes. <laughs> and he was like 23 years old. Uh, <laughs> Grandma the grapes, red ones. Okay, so, so you, you know, whenever Allah mentions worldly rewards, whenever Allah talks about like the worldly achievements and accomplishments, you'll always see a verse talking about the Akhirah. To remind you that nothing will come close. Because even in the palaces, there's still a moment where you're thirsty and hungry and you have to wait. 
right? That's why the happiest moment for us as people is when the waiter comes out of the, the kitchen. Everyone's like, oh boy, <laughs> right? I get all crazy. Are those my nachos? <laughs> you know? You get all excited. But imagine, subhanAllah, we're in Jannah where you get what you want and there is no waiting. It's immediate. There is no pain. There is no sadness. There is no backbiting. There is no discomfort. When you approach the gates of Jannah, the angels will tell you that you dealt with all of that stuff. You dealt with all of it there. You don't have to do any of it here. Leave all of your pain and sadness at the door. In Jannah, there's only pleasure and peace and tranquility. I ask Allah Ta'ala to grant us that. The reward of the hereafter is far better for those who believe in Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala and they always are mindful of Allah. They're always mindful of Allah. They come back to Him. Always mindful of Allah does not mean that you are perfect, but it means that when you slip, you come back. Because everyone slips. The Prophet said this, every son and daughter of Adam is a person who commits sins. But the best of those who sin are the ones who what? Repent. Let me tell you something that's really interesting. I was reading a commentary on this hadith. And the commentary said something so profound. The commentary said, when you do a good deed, we're taught, be sincere. Okay? If you pray, be sincere. If you fast, be sincere. But then the commentator said, when you make a mistake, when you sin, be sincere. And I remember reading it being like, that's got to be a typo. Because you know it's funny, in the, in the Arab world, when they publish these Arabic books, some of the editors are not like religious scholars. So they're just writing stuff, they're like, yep, that sounds good. You know, they just keep going. And you'll find fiqh rulings that are crazy. And you got to look it up. You're like, oh, that's not what he was saying at all. So I thought for a moment that this had to be a typo. Like, when you sin, be sincere. Maybe there was a copy and paste error, right? But then he kept going. And he said, sincerity when you sin means that you turn back to Allah immediately. I love that. I love that line because too often we're told sincerity means you don't make a mistake. But he was like... He was like embedding it. You make mistakes. And you have, to, you have to come back to Allah after that. That's why Allah Ta'ala commands the angel on your left shoulder to hold the pen. Don't write for hours and hours so that you have the ability to come back as quickly as possible. All right? This is what it means to have taqwa. A lot of times we think of a person with taqwa as being somebody that just like never makes mistakes. No. Because that person doesn't exist. That person, Aisha passed away. In Medina, 1400 years ago. Everyone since him has mistakes. Come back to Allah as quickly as possible. I know it feels weird. I know it feels strange. I know that part of the consciousness of a guilty person is that we don't want to come to terms with the guilt. Right? How many of you guys eat brisket and chocolate cake and then go to the scale and step on it? (laughs) Oh my, you was like, just me, right? Sad tears, right? How many of us do that? How many of us stay up late and we avoid looking at the clock because we don't want to know what time it is. Right? You play a trick on yourself. You've got to wake up early for work and you're like, I'm, not, I'm just not going to look at the clock. Guilt doesn't want to deal with accountability. But that's where your soul has to come in. And your soul has to bring yourself to the accountability and say, this is the time you turn back to Allah. You know what they say? Always clean the stain as soon as possible before it has time to set in. Right? When, when, when a person drops something on carpet, they're like, get to it quickly. If you leave it, you're, you just redesigned your carpet. It doesn't matter what you bring later. 
the, you got to bring the stronger stuff in now. Get to the stain on your heart before it has time to set in to the heart. Now Yusuf's brothers came to him. Now the, 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 the story shifts. So now he's the minister of agriculture. I know it doesn't sound that exciting. Right? The minister of agriculture. You tell your parents that, they're like, you couldn't have been the minister of medicine? <laughs> he's the minister of agriculture for Egypt. But again, it's almost like Dr. Fauci. Like at that time, it's like, he's, you know, he's the guy. So he's the minister of agriculture, and there's a drought, and there's a famine. And this is why he's put in this position, to take care of this situation, to take care of these people. And this is also something very profound. You know, Prophet Yusuf, in his story, we don't hear a lot of Yusuf doing very verbal da'wah, do we? Like, you hear it obviously in the story of the Prophet You hear it also in the story of uh, Musa and Salih and Shu'ayb and you know, Lut and all of these prophets. You hear them uh, dealing with their people, right? Calling them out. Yunus all these prophets are like verbally coming at and say, look, they're at least establishing what's real. Yusuf up until this point, we haven't really heard him say anything. All he's doing is what? All he's doing is? Well, they're suffering. Yeah, that's a little bit dark. But okay. Uh, okay. Uh, no. So there's a little bit of trial. Sure. Okay. All he's doing is? He's exhibiting patience. Okay. What else? When, he, when he's able to, what is he doing? When he's outside of the, 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 the confines of being shackled, what does he do? He's just taking care of people. He's just answering people's dream. Inter- you guys, have you ever been in trouble before? No? I'm going to look at the guy's side. Have you ever been in trouble before? Do you ever want to like help somebody? Like, if you're grounded, and then like your sibling is like, I need help with math. You're like, get away, man. Imagine being in prison, and they're like, oh, we had this crazy dream last night. Are you going to be like, lay it on me? Like, no, you're like, leave me alone. Let me die in peace. Right? But he's helping these guys. And then... They forget about him. And then they come back. One of them, sorry, the other one, ooh, that's awkward. Uh, one of them comes back. And he tells him, hey, I need your help again. And Yusuf doesn't say anything. He's not like, you forgot about me the first time. No, he says, sure. And he helps him, gives him another. SubhanAllah, he's always helping. You know what? You know, one of the Mufassirin, he mentioned this very briefly. He said, like, this is a form of his dawah. If you take care of people. Like, you may not be the person that walks into your your place of work, and be like, everyone repeat after me. Ashhadu. Right? <laughs> and I'm not making fun of that because that would be beautiful, but I'm making fun of the, the irrational confidence that person would have to walk into work and be like, everybody, please line up for salah. We must pray dhuhr together. Because that, you, again, why? Because that person would be like, I mean, have you guys ever been proselytized to by somebody, and you're like, you don't even know me. You know? Someone's like, have you, do you, do you know Jesus? I'm like, do you know me? Because if you knew me, you would know that I know Jesus, and I'm going to convert you now, right? So, <laughs> but there is a reality to serving somebody. The Prophet said, Sayyidul Qawm Khadimuhum, that the master of a people is their servant, and this is exactly what's happening. Yusuf is just taking care of people. Too often in our cultures and our community cultures, the idea of service is overlooked. Sometimes it's even sort of downplayed. Like, what did you do? Oh, I just folded the chairs. 
What's your job? Oh, it's just to pour the water or the lemonade or to hand out dates. That's from the realm of prophethood, right? It's easy to talk, like honestly. It's easy to get on a mic and just read other people's tafsirs. <laughs> that's all I do. I'm just a book report with a couple jokes, but that's really what I do. It's easy to do that. I promise you it is. You know what's difficult? What's difficult is taking care of people. That's where the real work is. And all of the prophets, I mean, look at the life of the Prophet ﷺ. Constantly serving, not just serving, but serving those people that wronged him. And this is why the story of Yusuf is coming to him. Too often we make service transactional. I'll only take care of them if they are good, if they didn't wrong me. What about taking care of somebody that wronged you? What about the story of the Prophet ﷺ taking care of those people that wronged him? How do we expect to change hearts if we can't turn, take care of people that turned away from us? SubhanAllah. That's why the Prophet ﷺ said, Feed people. Feed people. You can't hate someone who fed you. It's, it's, if the food's good, you can't. If it's bad, there's, you know, be careful. Cater for people, right? Modern sharh of that hadith. And Joseph's brothers came and entered his presence. So now they're back. You can imagine this is like a huge moment. Okay? But Allah Ta'ala says something here. فَدَخَلُوا عَلَيْهِ فَعَرَّفَهُمْ وَهُمْ لَهُ مُنْكِرُونَ That Yusuf was aware of them. Yusuf knew who they were. But they did not know who he was. There's a couple reasons for this. The logical explanation, again, and this is fine, is that he was so young that when they got rid of him, quote-unquote, uh, they didn't recall, and you guys have all seen young people and then tried to match the baby picture with the adult. It's difficult. It's not easy. So sometimes, right, the tafsir will mention that. Okay, it's been so long. But one of the other things that I love, the other mufassirun he mentioned, is he said that, just like the Prophet, that when the Prophet was escaping from Mecca as they were trying to assassinate him, and Allah hid him from them, he covered them, their eyesight up, and they did not see him. They said this is also similar. That when they came and stood in front of their brother, they stood in front of him, and Allah had made it so that even though they maybe could have guessed it was him, they were completely veiled from that. What's the value of that? What's the value of that idea or that thought? Is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not... Allah is not beholden to give you all of your access to your faculties when you demand them. Right? How many of us have like thought that we were going to do something and then we got food poisoning? Or you pulled your back? Or you got sick? Right? You thought you were going to go on that vacation in 2020. Uh, sorry, that was a trigger. I apologize, right? <laughs> you were on your way to the airport in March. And you thought, you thought, Right? You thought you were going to do this, and then subhanAllah. So these brothers show up, and in a perfect world, they thought they could identify their brother. If you ask them, I'm sure that, yeah, probably. Allah Ta'ala didn't give them that faculty. Who controls your body? Who controls your ability to process information? Who controls that? It's Allah Ta'ala. So they were unable to recognize their own brother. right? And there's also, subhanAllah, one, 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 straight, one reading of this is that because of the, the same thing, because of the guilt of their action, that they had, to have, they had to live with that. Just like the wife of the Aziz, that this inhibited them, it prohibited them from being able to recognize 
the beauty of their brother. Because remember, he was the most beautiful person. And so they came to him, and he recognized them, but they were unaware. Now, why were the brothers there? Any idea? What are we talking about now? What's happening? What's going on in Egypt? The drought, the famine. It's extending now to the outer parts of the region. So it's going east, and it's going across now the peninsula. It's going into the Gulf, and it's affecting Palestine, right? And Levant, and Sham, and all this area. So now it's getting serious, and all these tribes and all these people are coming in to Egypt, because Egypt, obviously, being on the Nile, having that water access, having the crop, uh, 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 the agricultural ability, they were the center of this, and so they were coming in and trying to get what? They were trying to get some rations, some food. And so they came, and they asked for some food. Now, they asked for it, and some of the tafsir says here that how did he know that it was his brothers? Is that he saw... These, this large group of people coming from this area, he asked them where they were from, and they said, we're from Palestine, we're from this area known as Palestine. And then he started to ask them even more, and they told them about their elderly father and their young brother who, didn't, who stayed back. And so he was like, oh, interesting. And then he asked them more questions, and eventually he was able to deduce that these were his brothers, and that the father was Yaqub, and that the younger brother that stayed back was Binyamin. Right? Why wouldn't the father send the brother? What happened last time? Right? What happened last time? So he was able to deduce this and figure this out. Still, they were asking him for some food. They're starving. They need food for their family. And so he provides for them. So it says, when he had provided them with their supplies, he made a demand. He said, bring me your brother. Bring me your brother on your father's side. Do you not see that I give full measure and I'm the best of hosts? What is he saying? Bring me your brother. Don't you see how much food I gave you? I'll give you some more. Just bring him. Why didn't you bring him? You would have gotten more. Come back, add your brother in your group, and you're going to get a lot of food. I'm the best of hosts. I'll take care of you. But if you do not bring him to me next time, then there's nothing for you. So it's an all or nothing deal now. If you come back and it's just you guys, no. You're not getting a refill. I'm only going to refill if you bring your brother and you will never ever come close to me again. Then they promise, they say out loud, we will try to convince his father. Why do you think they say his father and not our father? Abahu instead of Abana. Why? The Quran has no coincidence, guys. Every letter, literally it's one letter. Who? Abahu, his father, instead of Abana. Two letters. Why? Huh? Maybe a little bit of jealousy. Good. One tafsir mentions that. Anyone else? Yeah, I mean... Different mother. mother. Okay, good. Because the lineage is different. Right? Notice how I said from your father's side. Right? So they still got that in them. That they're, they're, they're jealous of that. Yeah, Humayun? Okay. They don't want to be embarrassed. Right? Having that relation. Prove that relation. Yeah? Okay, maybe because they're still referring in the same form of like, he's the beloved son. All of these, in some way, shape, or form, are mentioned by the Mufassirun. One of the explanations that I loved was, again, this was the impact of what they did. What do you guys think happens if you do something like what they did? Are you like, after that whole, you know, they come back and they're crying and they're showing the bloody shirt and their dad is like, no, this is not true. Like, I know you guys are lying. And then like, 
a little time passes. Is there like, what's for dinner? How do you, where does the relationship go from there? South. South. Big time. Big time. Yaqub is a prophet. He understands. Do you know that, I mean, he cried to the point that the story will tell us that he lost his sight. He was devastated. So the reality is, look, when you wrong somebody, when you wrong somebody, don't expect that person just to be able to get over it. Don't expect to be like, why are you acting so weird? Right? <laughs> the reality is when you wrong somebody, you have to come and fix that bridge before you try to walk on it again. Right? And if you've ever been on the part, if you've ever been on the side where you've been wronged, and someone tries to act like nothing happened, how do you feel? It's, it's, it's even more hurtful. It's even more hurtful. Like how, how are you just going to try to move on? Like I'm willing to move on, but you have to, you have to meet me, and we have to we have to discuss what happened. You know, you you said this about me. You did this to me. You you lied to me. You did this or whatever, right? Again, this ownership. Constantly, we're seeing this story in this surah of these people that wrong. And Subhanallah, how does this apply to the Prophet Well. The people that come to the Prophet ﷺ to take shahada with him, to convert on his hand, some of them have wronged him, seriously wronged. Like seriously wronged the Prophet ﷺ. Like some of them have killed his family members, his best friends. Some of them spent a decade or more, two decades, opposing him in battle. I mean Khalid ibn al-Walid, like his conversion literally happened almost at the end of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. If you read a story about Khalid and the Walid in the Sirah, he's fighting against the Prophet ﷺ. He's in battle against him. The only time you get to a point where the name Khalid has a radiallahu anhu next to it is in like the last chapter of the Sirah. He had to come to the Prophet ﷺ. And you know what he says to him? Listen, this is amazing. He's taking shahada with the Prophet ﷺ. This happens to Amr ibn As and Khalid. And they're, 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 they're coming to the Prophet ﷺ and they're, this is after Mecca has been opened and they realize now that we, you know, we, we believe. They come to him and they, take their, their, they put their hand in his hand and they begin to say the kalima and, they pull their, and he pulls his hand away very suddenly. And the Prophet ﷺ is like, what is this? What's going on? And he says to the Prophet, Ya Rasulullah, is Allah going to forgive me? Or do I have to carry that? Like, do, do I still have all that baggage? That all the stuff I said about you and did to you, and every, like, is Allah going to forgive that? Or if I do this right now, am I, am I clean? And the Prophet ﷺ, he laughed. And he said, you will be exactly like you were the day that you were born to your mother. Nothing bad on your record. The, the, the story is so powerful, not only because, of course, of the forgiveness of Allah, but of the sincerity of the person asking for forgiveness. He was so worried. He didn't pull his hand back because he regretted it. He pulled his hand back out of shame, out of shyness. Will Allah forgive me? Right? So this surah is lining up perfectly with the hardest moment in the life of the Prophet Wasallam. The Prophet Allah is telling, it's as if Allah is telling him that later in your life, who, what are you going to come across? People that are coming back to ask for your forgiveness. 
the very people that are making your life miserable, Ya Rasulullah, they're going to come back and say, please, help us. Forgive us. We were wrong. So the Prophet is witnessing Yusuf's story and he's like preparing himself for those moments. And that's why, spoiler alert, we'll finish here. When the Prophet enters Mecca for the opening of the city after years of not being able to come into it, after years of being pushed back and repelled and betrayed and fought against and wars and killed family members and friends, when he wants the people of Mecca, his people, his family, it's his khandan, it's like his, it's like his like extended family, when he wants them to know that he's coming in with, with, with no aggression, what does he say to them? He actually says to them the exact same statement that Yusuf will end up saying to his own brothers. La tathrib alaykum al He repeats the exact statement. As if to say, I learned this story before. I learned this... 13 years later, 13 years ago, I heard this story. And now I know what I have to do. Right? But those people, in order to be forgiven by the Prophet the first step had to be theirs. They had to come to him and ask for it. So they said, we will try to convince his father to let him come. And we will certainly do our best. They realize now what's at stake. And they're all probably internally very much thinking about Man, the last time we asked our father to let us borrow one of his kids, we didn't come back with one. So they're probably thinking, this is horrible, right? This is the worst thing that could happen. We really need this food. And if we come back with our brother, it's as simple as that. We'll get more food. But man, I wish, I wish we didn't do what we did, you know, those 12 so years ago. Because we could have been in a really, or more than that, we could have been in a really, really good spot had we not abused our brother and our father like that. Sins always come back to bite you. We ask Allah Ta'ala to forgive us. We ask Allah Ta'ala to protect us. We ask Allah Ta'ala to always keep us on the side of goodness. We ask Allah Ta'ala to always make us people that have humility. And we ask Allah Ta'ala to give us the confidence and the modesty, but the confidence to be able to help out when we're needed and to do the right thing when we're needed. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make us people of Qur'an, that we read these verses, we reflect on them, and then we come with lessons that apply to our own lives. We ask Allah Ta'ala to not make us like the high land that does not hold rain, but to make us like the valleys that hold water as it comes down from the sky. We ask Allah Ta'ala to allow us to be humble and to allow us to act upon all of that which we hear from His book. Ameen, Ameen. Ya Rabbil Alameen. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa antina astaghfirukum wa tubu ilayk. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.